Hey guys, this is Carmen Schober with the Stacios podcast. It has been a while. <laughs> Sorry about that, but Ian and I are here. We're alive. We've been doing lots of important things um, and also, you know, not important things, just regular life stuff. But Ian is here with me today to talk about the heartbeat law out of Texas that has been wildly controversial and celebrated and talked about. And I'll be honest with everyone, I have not had the opportunity to closely follow its trajectory, what people are saying about it, other than who I expected to be happy about it is happy about it, who I expected to be unhappy about it is unhappy about it. So Ian is here to delve into primarily the legal side of things so that we can all kind of understand what this is doing legally, what we can expect it to do, and then we'll uh, kind of just expand from there. So Ian, give us the legal gist of what's going on in Texas. Yeah, well, I'm glad you put it that way, Carmen. I think you're kind of in the position that most conservatives are in with respect to this law. I think a lot of conservatives now, it seems like, are catching on to the fact that Texas and the Supreme Court decision on Texas's law did not overturn Roe v. Wade. There was some initial reporting from conservative media that somehow the Supreme Court decision to not issue a preliminary injunction against Texas's law, that somehow it had overturned Roe v. Wade. And it does seem like, you know, to clarify, that's not the case. Roe v. Wade has in no way been overturned, nor has there been any suggestion that Roe v. Wade will be overturned by the Supreme Court. Certainly not in this, this Texas case, that is. And I feel like conservatives are starting to catch on to the fact that Roe v. Wade has not been overturned. But I don't think there's a lot of depth of understanding beneath that. So this will be kind of a good opportunity yeah. as, as you, as someone who's just in the position of most conservatives on this issue, for us to have a productive conversation about this. Yes, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a normie. So you are going <laughs> to red pill me on on the Supreme Court so I can fully understand. You're only, you only a normie on niche <laughs> legal issues. Carmen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I thought two, two things we could cover just to kind of give some background here are first, this issue of what is a preliminary injunction? And then second, this idea that you and I have both encountered from people who call themselves abolitionists that states... Uh, should and can, quote unquote, nullify Roe v. Wade in the way that states have nullified federal marijuana laws. So let's, let's talk about each of those things. So the, f- the first one is pretty simple. A preliminary injunction happens when, let's say there's a lawsuit between A and B, and A says B is going to do something illegal that's going to injure me. And now A sues B to stop the bad thing from happening. But lawsuits take a long time. And this injury that B is going to do is going to happen to A right away. So what A can do is A can move in court for what's called a preliminary injunction. To get a preliminary injunction, you have to show your quote unquote, likely to succeed on the merits, among other things. That means you have to show you have a really good chance of winning this case eventually. But if the judge says yes and gives you the preliminary injunction, he isn't saying you've won. When a judge gives a a preliminary injunction, all the judge is saying is, look, 
I'm just going to hit pause on what B is about to do. B, you can't do the thing you're about to do. I'm pausing it. But the good news, B, is you're still going to have your day in court. We're still going to have a full normal trial. You can present all your arguments and we'll decide whether this thing you're going to do is legal. So a preliminary injunction isn't a final quote unquote ruling on the merits, meaning B hasn't actually lost the case, but A does have this preliminary injunction from the judge blocking B from doing the thing B was going to do. Now, this can be between private people. It can be a lawsuit between just two people or companies or something. But in the abortion context, what happens a lot is states will pass laws that are contrary to Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey on purpose. And the laws never even go into effect in the first place because a plaintiff, uh, usually at an abortion clinic, will sue for a preliminary injunction. They'll get the preliminary injunction, which blocks the law. And then the law is litigated all the way through the courts and eventually the state loses because the court finds this is what you've done is clearly contrary to Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And often as in, for example, certain laws that have been passed by Utah, the state will be quite explicit about the fact that it is trying to violate Roe and Casey. So it's not like there's even a real dispute there. So you've got the, the two problems for the state of one, the preliminary injunction, which means the law never goes into effect at all. And then two, the state ends up losing in court. And okay. we'll get into this more in a minute, but what Texas was trying to do here, and it worked, was they were trying to deal with just the first problem of can we get around the preliminary injunction? Texas has not gotten around the second problem. They have not actually won in court. And I will argue, I think that the people who are making the decisions here in Texas know that they're going to lose in court eventually. All they wanted to do was avoid that first problem of the preliminary injunction. Interesting. So how did they do it? Like, did I miss that part? Like what what made this unique to the fact that the Supreme Court didn't grant that preliminary injunction this time? And we know why. Right. Yeah, we do. So okay. let's just to give some further background, let's talk about the, the abolitionist argument. Okay. Yeah. Because an abolitionist would might, love to. Right. An abolitionist <laughs> might look at this case and say, well, this shows abolitionism works or something like that, which is not true. Abolitionists are non-lawyers. As far as I know, there's no lawyers that are abolitionists. And what I mean by abolitionists is I mean a very specific group of people that say states should intentionally pass laws that just cancel out Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And the reason this will work is we've seen other states contravene federal law on things like marijuana. States have nullified federal marijuana laws. Mm-hmm. Now, all lawyers, including all pro-life lawyers, will tell those people what you're doing is not going to work. But if, if you're in this internet, very online subculture of abolitionists, what their response is, is to those lawyers is, well, you're just saying that because you're a sellout and you're part of the establishment or something mm-hmm. and you're, you're simply yeah. not on our side. 
or it's always like, well, Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional. That's like the drumbeat. And you're like, yes, I agree with you. However, I recognize that functionally Roe v. Wade is constitutional. You know, like, I don't know. That's how you encounter it. That's sort of where the argument always goes. If you push them to acknowledge that the laws that they're pursuing are not going to work, they say, well, we shouldn't even care because Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional, which you're just like, and around and around we go because what right. are we even talking about if we can't like yeah yeah that- and you make a good point which is there's kind of a there's a fundamental underlying disagreement that's maybe unspoken about whether we should be trying to do things that work or whether we should just be trying to like make the right point abstractly right like mm-hmm. what's our goal is our goal to like get things done that will help people or is our goal to like be saying the perfect things right in some some right. sense so yeah. anyways let's kind of draw this out with an analogy um with a distinction between nullifying abortion law and nullifying marijuana law so there are certain federal criminal laws against marijuana and when a state nullifies federal marijuana laws what it does is it passes a law saying we're not going to enforce this federal law and you know Tough luck, federal government. We're not doing this for you. Now, in the case of abortion, and this has happened many times, states have intentionally passed laws that contravened Roe and Casey. I gave the example of Utah. And Utah is a good example because Utah, they're very explicit about like, yes, we're, we're passing this law that's intentionally contradictory against Roe and Casey. Um, when a state does that, what will happen is an abortion clinic will sue As part of their lawsuit, they will ask for a preliminary injunction and they will get a preliminary injunction that will stop the law from ever going into effect. Now, the reason they get a preliminary injunction is that under our federal court system, abortion is a federal constitutional right. So in essentially any circumstance, a federal judge is going to grant that preliminary injunction because they're going to say, well, it sure looks to me like you're going to win. I'm going to give both sides a day in court. But when Utah is saying we're intentionally breaking the law, yeah, it looks like you're likely to succeed on the merits. So I'm going to give you the preliminary injunction, pause the Utah law, and then eventually Utah is going to lose the case. Now, what's the, what's the difference between that and the marijuana case? The marijuana case is th- there's no federal constitutional right to stop other people from smoking marijuana. So if I live in like Colorado and I hate marijuana and Colorado nullifies federal marijuana law and I sue to get a preliminary injunction, I don't, I don't have a federal constitutional right to stop other people from smoking marijuana. There's a federal law, a federal statutory law against marijuana but it's not a right I have to stop other people from smoking marijuana. So I'm not going to get the injunction. The court's just going to throw out my case, right? Whereas if because women have under our federal system of government, a federal constitutional right to have an abortion, they will get that preliminary injunction in any federal court. And what that means is that these abolitionists for for their strategy to actually work the state would first need to functionally secede from the united states before it passed the law if you're part of the federal court system of the united states 
your law is going to be subject to a preliminary injunction and it's never even going to go into effect. So it will accomplish nothing. Um, So that's the issue there. Okay, so um, why is Texas's law different with respect to the preliminary injunction? The issue is, this is how Texas set up its law. Texas set up its law so that the law is not enforced by any Texas law enforcement official. It's not enforced by the attorney general. It's not enforced by the police. It's not enforced by anyone employed by the state of Texas as a law enforcement official. The only way the Texas law stops abortion is it lets private citizens bring a lawsuit against an abortion provider who performs an abortion. And if you bring that lawsuit and win under the Texas statute, you get $10,000. Now, here's what's weird about this. What's weird about this is Texas cleverly identified a hole that they could exploit in federal constitutional law. Because normally, think of the example I just gave about Utah, for example. Normally, the preliminary injunction would be against two. It would be against probably the attorney general of Utah, or it'd be against the county prosecutors in Utah. It'd be against some kind of state law enforcement official. But here, the only people who can enforce the law are private citizens bringing lawsuits. And it makes no sense to issue a preliminary injunction or any kind of injunction against all of the citizens of Texas or like against the world. You can't issue like injunction against the planet. It has to be against specific people telling them you can't do such and such, right? So what that means is that there's really only one person that you could issue a preliminary injunction against in order to stop this law from working. And that would be judges in Texas. But here's the problem. Our federal courts in the United States, at least the U.S. Supreme Court, has never held that you can get an injunction against a judge. That's the hole that was identified here. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals over Texas, which is extremely conservative, um, basically forced the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case. Any other Federal Circuit Court of Appeals would have granted the injunction, I think, except the Fifth Circuit. But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals intentionally did nothing so that the U.S. Supreme Court would have to take the case. And I am pretty sure no one on the Supreme Court was happy about this. The Supreme Court did (laughs) not want to take this case. But when the Supreme Court took the case, here's what the, the majority said, the five to four majority of the Supreme Court. What they said is, look, to get a preliminary injunction, as I talked about earlier, you have to show you're likely to succeed on the merits. And they basically said, they didn't say this verbatim, but they basically said in the opinion, we recognize this law is probably unconstitutional because it prohibits abortion at six weeks. Uh, The Roe and Casey standard lets you prohibit abortion at viability, which is around 24 weeks. So it's probably unconstitutional. But we have never held before ever that you can issue an injunction against a judge. So we're not willing to say as a matter of preliminary injunctive relief 
that judges can be enjoined from enforcing a law when we've literally never done that before. And actually, I've not heard anyone mention this quote, but there's a, a famous quote. Well, there's a famous case, I should say, ex parte young, which allows you to get a preliminary injunctive relief against a state attorney general. And in that case, ex parte young, the court actually said this. This case is from 1908. The court said, an injunction against a state court would be a violation of the whole scheme of our government. So now, when the Supreme Court said that in 1908, I don't think they had imagined that someday someone would do something like what Texas just did. (laughs) I don't think that occurred to them. But the point is, this is a real problem that Texas identified of whether you can get an injunction against a judge. So for that reason, Texas has for now avoided preliminary injunctive relief. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> this is a lot. I'm sitting here pondering all of it. <laughs> so, okay. Just to back up here a second, because when you said that part about only private citizens can enforce this. Yeah. Let's make sure we're clear on everything we talked about uh-huh. already before we yeah. move forward. I think I got it as clear as, as clear as I can be. <laughs> okay. So I live in Texas. I know someone's going to perform an abortion at eight weeks. I report it. They can enforce it then? That's like, that's the instance when it can be. Ah, uh, good question. So, technically, the answer to that is no. So, if you report okay. it to the police, the police will say, We can do nothing, Carmen. There's literally no power <laughs> under the law for us to do anything. So, we're, we won't take your police report. We will do nothing. But under the law, if you want to sue the abortion provider and you show the abortion provider performed an abortion at eight weeks, you will win $10,000 from the abortion provider. So there's no, no police, no prosecutors, not the attorney general, no one in, employed in the law enforcement capacity by the state of Texas is allowed in any way to enforce this law. And they did that on purpose. Because if they were allowed to, yes, if they were allowed to enforce the law, they would get an injunction. But you, Carmen, can be an abortion bounty hunter, and you can sue (laughs) the the person who does the eight week abortion and get ten thousand bucks. I see. Okay, and so it's not really going to, like you were saying earlier, it's it's not going to effectively stop the abortions from happening because you have to have. Well, I guess you could maybe if you could show that like. They were going to and they didn't or something. I don't know. But the point of it being they weren't necessarily putting this forward because they thought it was going to ban abortions effectively. They just thought we could possibly get around this primary or preliminary injunction. And then there's a phase two. Yeah. So the, okay. the phase two, remember earlier, I kind of split up phases one and two where phase one is the preliminary, preliminary injunction and phase two is whether you win on the merits. Mm-hmm. Oh, and actually, sorry, I should yeah, back up ahead. and say, I realize now how it could effectively deter abortion. It does. It basically is stopping abortions in Texas right now. Because, really? okay. right. For, for now, there are people that are performing abortions intentionally and saying like, come and get me, come try to get your $10,000. There's people doing that and we can talk about that. But 
there most abortion clinics are not performing abortions in Texas because they don't want to have to pay ten thousand dollars to everyone that sues them. Gotcha. I got you. Right. Yeah, I've been hearing I've been hearing from the abolitionist group that this or abolitionist general, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Long community, whatever, that it's not working. They're not enforcing it. Useless. You know, like that's kind of the the rhetoric coming out of it is that, you know, people are coming from other states and getting abortions in Texas. They're making fun of it, that kind of thing. So that's all I'd heard. I hadn't looked into if it actually was deterring. But now that I think about it, I'm like, well, it would deter at least a few people. It is. It's a lot of $10,000 like adding up. Yeah, you know. It is deterring, but it hasn't stopped abortions. And yeah, probably some of those abolitionists just didn't realize the structure of the law. Like probably some of those abolitionists heard Texas banned abortions at six weeks and they were expecting like the cops to go and arrest the people. Right. Right. Exactly. But that's, yeah. It's like criminalized. But it's yeah. intentionally set up so it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, so what I was saying about phase one and phase two is, yeah, I, I think it is deterring some abortions, but phase two is that when the case is actually litigated on the merits, which hasn't happened yet. And I mm -hmm. think Texas knows it's going to lose at that stage, in which case then everything will be back to normal in Texas. And not only will everything be back to normal in Texas, probably, but this same strategy will then not work again elsewhere because courts are going to close up this loophole about issuing injunctions against judges. I don't know how exactly they're going to do it, but they're going to give a new rule that explains, okay, if a state tries to effectively prohibit a constitutional right using this convoluted scheme, this is how you get an injunction. Courts are going to come up with that rule. And then once courts come up with that rule, from then on, people will be able to get preliminary injunctions if states try to do this scheme. So gotcha. it, it won't continue to work going forward. However, that does not necessarily take away from the intended goals of Texas and the lawyer who wrote this statute. So that is helpful. I think we should talk a bit about what the lawyer and what Texas was trying to do by writing yeah. this statute. So yeah, I want to know. This statute was written by a lawyer named Jonathan F. Mitchell, who is the former Solicitor General of Texas. And Jonathan Mitchell explained basically what he was going to do in a law review article that he published in 2018, a couple of years ago. And in this law review article, the problem Jonathan Mitchell was trying to solve actually was not how do we overturn Roe v. Wade. That's not the problem he was talking about. The problem Jonathan Mitchell was complaining about is, and this is, this is a simplified version of what Jonathan Mitchell's complaint is, but I don't want to get into the whole larger issue. It'd be too complicated. For simplicity's sake, a particular part of what Jonathan Mitchell is complaining about is that when a court issues a preliminary injunction against a statute, here's what he says. Whenever this happens, in the public, in the media, the statute is all too often described as having been blocked, struck down, nullified, rendered void, or invalidated by the adverse court decision. This type of rhetoric implies that the statute has been formally suspended or erased. When the statute actually remains on the books as a matter of law and remains available, 
for future officials to enforce, maybe. So what Jonathan Mitchell is upset about in this Law Review article is he's saying, I want to change public opinion by getting around injunctions, because when an injunction is granted, even if the statute is a good statute, just because an injunction is granted, the media and the public think it's blocked, struck down, nullified, etc. But if you listen to what I explained at the beginning of this podcast about what a preliminary injunction means, you know a preliminary injunction, at least, doesn't mean a statute is blocked, struck down, etc. Doesn't, doesn't mean you've lost. It's just a pause. So basically, what Jonathan Mitchell, I think, wanted to do with this statute was not overturn Roe v. Wade. What he wanted to do is kind of expand the Overton window, if you will, of what is possible in the minds of the public. So I think he was thinking, if I can just get a six-week abortion ban to be in effect and be on the books for a little bit and survive a preliminary injunction, which has never happened before, the public will now think of this as a more legitimate possibility. Interesting. And then he proposes in the Law Review article a way for legislatures to get around this problem. And he says legislatures should get around this problem using something called key tan relator actions. And I won't explain what that is, but basically he's saying legislatures should get around this problem by having private citizens enforce the law through civil lawsuits. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Key tan, excuse me. T-A-M. So conservative media the next day after this decision was basically like Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And there's absolutely no way in which that is true. Um, And in fact, there's nothing in the majority opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court that even indicates they're interested in using this case to overturn Roe. They basically acknowledged that the Texas law is substantively unconstitutional and will eventually be overturned. And the Supreme Court, by the way, was literally, not literally, was figuratively forced at gunpoint to take this case. I mean, the Fifth Circuit is like, I don't know, what's a good analogy? It's like the Alex Jones of Federal Circuit Courts of Appeals. It's, they're, they're a little out there. So it's the funnest? Not, not, not quite, they're not quite as extreme as Alex Jones. But what they did is they thwarted John Roberts's plan on abortion. John Roberts's plan was, I'm going to basically try to stay out of the abortion stuff. And I think John Roberts intended to let federal circuit courts of appeals kind of chip away at maybe limit Roe and Casey in certain ways to an extent. And John Roberts was going to decline to hear those cases. He wasn't going to overturn the conservative circuits. So I think he was going to say, I'm going to leave this to the federal circuit courts of appeals. Some are going to be more liberal. Some are going to be a bit more conservative and are going to dial in Roe and Casey more. And I won't stop them. I'm just going to try to stay out of this. Um, And John Roberts was counting on if someone did anything really out there, like banning all abortion at six weeks, he was thinking, well, because that's so obviously contrary to Roe and Casey, which is established law the lower federal courts will do their jobs and will issue injunctions against it. And I won't have to ever have to look at the case. But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, 
no, John Roberts, we're going to force you to hear this case by not issuing an injunction. And so the Supreme Court was taken completely by surprise, which is why this decision was kind of delayed and issued in a sort of funky way. They had almost no time to make this decision. And so Roberts was taken by surprise. You know, Roberts is a very good kind of coalition builder. He's good at negotiating deals with other justices and saying like, look, if you give me this, I'll give you this. Uh, this is why it's in all of our interests to do such and such. He's a negotiator and a deal maker. But Roberts had no time to do this because all of a sudden in 48 hours, they were like forced to decide this issue. And the Supreme Court was taken completely by surprise. So that was a big advantage that Texas had here as well. And I, there's just really no question that ultimately when the substance of this case is heard, this is not going to pan out for Texas. And I think Texas knows that. And Jonathan Mitchell, who wrote the law, knows that as well. And it was never his intention to have this pan out and really be sustainable. So that leads me to a follow-up question, which is less probably on the legal side, just more your opinion. But I think you can probably answer it somewhat succinctly and we can wrap it up soon because I think you've covered most of this. But do you think that this was a good move? Like, obviously, this guy's strategy wasn't to really ban abortion at six weeks, although it sounds like he has a strategy that he thinks could potentially work to do that. Do you think this idea of expanding the public's awareness of what can be done was worth the effort? If it's just going to be struck down later? I'm just curious, like, yeah. from a strategic standpoint, if you think it's effective. So one, one thing I should add that's relevant to this is, and I have not looked at this case, but I have heard about this morning. Finally, there is the first really substantive case being heard on this Texas abortion law where someone, someone brought a law trying to get the $10,000 penalty, because what happened is an abortion provider, and this is probably what your, your abolitionist friends were talking about, an abortion provider wrote an op-ed basically openly saying, I'm going to break the law and perform an abortion after six weeks, come and stop. Um, so he openly announced he was going to do this, and then he did the abortion. So now the question is, who do you think came after him and tried to sue him? Was it a pro-life lawyer in Texas? Was it a pro-life legal group? Was it Jonathan F. Mitchell? No, none of those people sued him. Why did none of those people sue him? Because they know the sooner that the substance of the case is heard, the sooner the law is thrown out. And then we all have to basically put our toys away and this game is finished and we go home and we, we no longer get to pretend we have a six-week abortion ban. So they, they want to keep this thing going on as long as possible to broaden the Overton window in the public's minds. So the, pers the person who actually sued the doctor was a prisoner in Arkansas. I don't know if he's a disbarred lawyer, but he at least was someone who did practice law prior to being incarcerated in Arkansas. And he sued and he's, he's not even, I've just heard about this. I haven't researched this personally, but the word is this guy is not even pro-life. He just sued to try to get the $10,000. So literally oh. just an abortion bounty hunter. I see. But right, it's telling that none of these groups, none of these pro-life groups sued because they know the law is not 
substantively constitutional. I see. So to circle back to your question, the question is, did this law make strategic sense? And I think the law did accomplish Jonathan F. Mitchell's strategic goal of broadening the Overton window precisely because so many people in the public believe that it's possible now to have a six-week abortion ban, even if that's not true as a matter of legal merit people have that perception now, okay. which I think, judging from his law review article, is kind of what he wanted to do. Now, there's other negative effects, like this six-week abortion ban in purple states, like where I live in New Hampshire, is being used as a major campaign point by Democrats and mm-hmm. is being used very effectively. And it's being used to instill in Democrats in states that are not Texas, a fear that is really not particularly realistic. And so in that sense, in other areas of the country, you could say there are ways in which it is helping Democrats. But from the standpoint of Jonathan F. Mitchell's specific goal that he wanted to accomplish, he did accomplish that goal. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have to think about longer if I think, because the fact that it's going to be eventually struck down almost to me is like, well, man, that even, I mean, you open it up in the minds of people that you can have this six-week abortion ban, but then, of course, the media will go insane when it's no longer on the books or whatever. So that's the part I'd have to think about. Did he accomplish what he wanted or did he make it worse? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Now, let, let me say one more thing that is in defense of the Supreme Court majority, the five to four majority, because there are people out there that think, look, the, the five who decided not to grant the injunction, this was just a nakedly political decision that they made. It wasn't supported by the law. And I think that it was reasonable for the majority of the conservatives to decline to issue an injunction. You know, Granted, they didn't expect to have to make this decision. It was forced on them. They had to rush the decision. But just as a matter of legal merit, I'm not talking about philosophical stuff here. I think what they did was reasonable. And the citation I will give you here is to the dissenting opinion that was signed by Chief Justice Roberts. And it was also signed by two liberal justices, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer. Kagan's kind of the most moderate liberal justice. Breyer is, he is to the left of Kagan, but He's more moderate than Sotomayor. That's maybe a good way to put it. So two of the liberal justices joined this dissenting opinion with Roberts. And one thing they said in this opinion was they're talking about the question of whether you can issue an injunction against a judge. And remember, I read that quote earlier from that famous 1908 case that said, absolutely, you can't do it. And Roberts, in this opinion, joined by Kagan and Breyer, joined by two Democrats, says, Defendants argue that existing doctrines preclude judicial intervention, and they may be correct. But then they go on to say, however, we think we should issue a preliminary injunction here because if we don't, it'll signal to other states that you can cancel out any constitutional right you want by just coming up with this convoluted scheme that's going to have all kinds of consequences that are bad. So let's just pause things where they are now and have judicial review before the law goes into effect. And the key point that I want to make there is that even Kagan and Breyer, who signed that opinion, are saying 
yeah, there's actually a real question of whether you can issue an injunction against a judge. That's, a, that's not a made-up uh, kind of pretext that conservatives just kind of concocted in bad faith. Mm. That's a real serious legal dispute. And so I think there are good reasons setting aside philosophy and the actual you know, moral issue of abortion just on the legal merits. There's good reasons for the five ma- conservative majority of the Supreme Court to say, we're not going to decide this really crucial issue on a preliminary injunctive basis. Wow. Super interesting. Every time I talk to you, though, I feel very, I feel like I know nothing about the court system. Like, I think I know more than the average person. And then I talk to you and I'm like, no, I'm just an average person. Well, that last point was maybe like more depth than most people wanted. But if there happened to be any lawyers listening, I guess that that last point was more for them. But, um, <laughs> that was a bonus. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the rest of it, you know, I, I hope that we've sort of helped break this down a little bit for people that have only kind of tangentially followed what's going on. Yeah, I had no idea a lot of that. So that's super helpful and interesting. It's like way more, way more 4D chess than I realized it was. <laughs> so there's a lot of 4D chess gotta in the legal world. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. Yeesh. Cool. Well, thanks, Ian. Always super insightful. And thanks, Carmen. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Let's do this again sooner than we did. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Bye, Ian. Awesome. See you.